Hello, and welcome to the New Lines Podcast. I'm your host, uh, Kareem Shaheen, sitting in for my uh, far more competent and, uh, might I add, uh, handsome colleague, uh, Faisal Yafei. Um, uh, we've uh, we've got two guests uh, with us today. You are, of course, used to us bringing you stories from the Middle East and beyond on matters of uh, great significance and controversy. And um, uh, and I I will say quite seriously that none are more controversial than food. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, you know I've gone on moral crusades over the desecration of hummus, one of our favorite uh, dishes uh, in the region. But more on that later. Uh, we've got two incredible guests uh, today to talk about food, uh, to talk about uh, how it can bring people together and how it can set us apart as well. Um, our first guest is Suna Chapai. Uh, she's an author and professor of architectural history and archaeology at Bacicahev University in Istanbul. Uh, and uh, I will say uh, before I welcome her that uh, the first time I contacted Suna was uh, to get her to write a story for us about uh, the Fatimids in Egypt. Um, and uh, she responded with uh, with pitches uh, on Buza, a very uh, well-known cocktail in Istanbul, um, as well as a uh, another pitch uh, that we later published as well on Ashura, a very well-known dessert. Uh, welcome, Suna. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And our second guest is Riyad Asimovic Akyol, and she's a contributing editor uh, at New Lines, uh, who's written uh, for us about uh, gastro and uh, and we'll. Uh, talk about what that is uh, in a second. Uh, welcome, Ria. Hi, Karim. It's always so great to chat with you. Lovely to have you both. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, so, so Suna, I want to start with you. Uh, uh, could you tell us a little bit first about what Ashure is? Sure. Um, it is a pudding uh, that's made with uh, uh, wheat uh, as well as um, nuts, sugar, and dried and fresh fruit. And it is um, the way that it, it functions for me. It is, you know, very personal. And it's one of the recipes that I feel like, you know, I can connect with my roots, with my background, with my religious uh, orientation and belongings. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, you, you talk in the piece um, uh, a lot about uh, how it was, uh, you know, a, a constant presence uh, during Ashura celebrations, which is... Uh, uh, primarily a, um, a holiday that's primarily celebrated by, uh, by Shias and Alevis in Turkey, correct? Yes, yes. So for Turkey, I think it is both cooked by the Alevis and the Sunnis, but the household that I grew up in was an Alevi household, and it was an important um, uh, religious food for us um, around the time of the Muharram, on the 10th day of the Muharram, my mom would cook the Ashure pudding and we would share it with our neighbors. So I grew up, you know, watching her making the Ashure and distributing it to the neighbors. And then uh, when she died, um, and it was around the time that I went to the US to do, to do my PhD, um, I just, you know, remembered that particular episode with her. And I think it was a way for me to get in touch with her, you know, emotionally and food-wise or food-ways. And uh, I started, you know, cooking my own ashures, sharing it with my friends and with my colleagues. And then also I realized that, you know, not only the Alevis, but a couple of other people or wide variety of people from the Middle East and the Balkans, they had their own versions of ashure. Maybe they didn't call it an ashure, but the recipe was very similar. And it also fulfilled similar functions or served similar functions like funerary functions, uh, you know, celebrating important days of the year, celebrating the feast days of the Orthodox saints in the Balkans, uh, things like that. So I was very startled, very surprised that, you know, something that I associate with my own background had this really widespread, very dynamic, um, impact all around the world. Um, and this is how my, I think, interaction with uh, the Ashura started. And since then, since 2000, I have been cooking my own Ashura, not only around the time of Muharram, but also, uh, you know, uh, whenever I'm asked by friends or by family, I cook my own Ashura. So, so what goes into it? I know you've you've written a recipe for us, uh, and the recipe that uh, that you use is a little bit different than, than the one your mom used when, uh, when yes. you were growing up, right? Yeah. Um, again, you know, my mom's version was very minimal. Um, it had uh, wheat berries, uh, chickpeas, uh, 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 white beans, uh, 
uh, dried uh, sultana raisins and uh, walnuts, cinnamon and sugar. That was her recipe. But I think I just, as soon as I browsed through the cookbooks and spoke with other people who were making similar Ashura-like puddings and desserts, um, I came up with my own recipe. Um, uh, whereas, you know, my mom's recipe is very minimal and she served, she used to serve it hot, steaming hot, and it was very watery. It wasn't very thick. My version is perhaps it has around 20 ingredients um, and I serve it cold and my Ashura is also very thick. Um, in, in our conversation before, before we started recording, uh, you said that, that you can't um, really talk about Ashura without getting emotional. Uh, is, is it because of it? So it reminds you of the time you spent with her. Is it because it, it reminds you of certain days gone by and occasions? Does it evoke certain memories that are that are kind of uh, um, uh, you know difficult to, uh, to to remember and to contemplate? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it is the power of the food. Um, food has really interesting impact in one's life. Um, I often feel emotional when I think about the, you know, the recipes that my mom used to make or the asherahs she used to cook and serve. Um, you know, it just takes me back to that particular moment with her. And also, I, I think asherah or any other recipes that she would make or she taught me how to make um, are nostalgic uh, right now for me. Um, it is just the, you know, the the wound that I don't want to go to and uh, feel or the scratch always, um, almost like that. Uh, so as I said, you know, by nature, I'm a very emotional person as well. And, you know, I attribute maybe sometimes silly stuff to food and things like that as well. And that's why, you know, I don't feel, um, you know, I don't feel sometimes very comfortable talking about the recipes or the, you know, the rituals of uh, making of the Ashure, um with my mom or with my with the mem members of my family. I, I think I speak for for the whole New Lines family uh, in, in expressing our gratitude that you uh, that you shared it with us. Uh, oh, my you. pleasure, my pleasure. Uh, Riada, uh, so. You, your piece, um, you know, talked a bit about, uh, you know, Turkish cuisine and uh, Bosnian cuisine, and, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, but, uh, but you, you know, you, you, you talked about how food can, can drive us apart and how it can be used by, uh, you know, tyrannical uh, regimes um, like the Serbian regime that perpetrated genocide in Bosnia uh, to, to divide people and to, uh, to, to sort of promulgate a, a, you know, cultural purity. Uh, through through the use of food and cuisine, and you call that uh, you describe that as gastro-nationalism. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what that is and, and how it manifests in um, uh, particularly in places where there's conflict and uh, an ethno-centric conflict in particular? Absolutely, uh, and I just want to say that that makes. Um two of us or maybe even three of us emotional in this conversation or maybe I mean food is so powerful indeed and it evokes all sorts of memories like Suna said for me too um, it reminds of moments and of people who both made that food for us or people we shared that food with so um just a little bit of background on that piece that that's actually uh, called recipes for disaster and kudos to the team editor who coined such a wonderful um, title i mean it is inspired by a series of true stories and habits and one of them was being a frequent visit to a small supermarket in a dc suburb that sells a lot of products from the balkans in turkey where my husband happens to be from and so the products that we buy and the dishes that we make and eat in our house of course, they do have some differences, but they have a lot more in common. And it was during the pandemic lockdowns, I think, in 2020 and partly in 2021, that I personally started thinking a bit more consciously about, or maybe in new ways, about how and what is my relationship with the food and what it represents for me, and also to study a little bit more from a political standpoint about the relationship between food and politics and nationalism because I can't escape it because of my background. And so um, it in my household, as I said, those conversations about, you know, who makes it better are almost always benign. But I have been aware for so long, um, 
both in the Balkans, and I know how food can also be politicized in Turkey as well, um, and following conversations from different regions. I actually don't think that there is a region in the world where these food fights or conversations are um, easy because there's so much passion related to it. Uh, but, uh, you know, supposed origin of a particular dish in, can can get very politicized online and offline. So um, when we speak about the Balkans and, you know, now that you mentioned it, one of the very, very and most toxic um, co consequence or shall we say uh, manifestation has been pretty racist in a way that um, some, uh, in, for example, in 1995, some Bosnian Serb soldiers invented a popular song called Remove Kebab. And at the time, it served as a praise of wartime Bosnian Serb leader Radovan Karadzic, who orchestrated the genocide. And with that slogan, all Muslims became kebab eaters, so to speak. And, and that particular phrase became a slogan for murdering them. Later on in 2006, that song became viral and it became a meme that today is used worldwide by white supremacists and Nazis. And that also includes a terrorist in Christchurch, New Zealand, who massacred 51 innocent worshippers in two mosques because he had literally kebab remover, among other racist slurs, on his guns. And he referred to himself as a kebab removalist in his online manifesto and even more, you know, in, in parts of his live stream atrocity, he even played the song Remove Kebab before committing that um, horrific human slaughter. So that particular manifestation is related to the global far right, white supremacists and populist movements who have adopted such narratives of food. Um, and we have seen it um, for around the world. In my piece, I, I cited just some of them from Liga Nord in Italy or AfD in Germany or Vox in Spain. And it gets really sometimes sophisticated, sometimes much less sophisticated, even Front National in France, in the way that these parties have used different food to promote what they think is authentic cuisine. Um, and, and that way they are othering uh, particular groups, particular, uh, I mean, more specifically immigrants um, and, and anti-Muslim anti bigotry that's being kind of um, embraced by these uh, parties in those countries. So that manifestation of, and, and the analogy between kebab and the crackdowns in different countries in Europe on anybody, even businesses that sell it, has been really uh, one of the worst kind of forms of connection between, you know, food and uh, nationalism and that removed the kebab in, in Bosnian genocide context. But I've also learned that even in um, Hindu context, some Hindu nationalists have started to use biryani eater, which I haven't known, as an insult for Muslims who are a minority in India and also for anyone who criticizes nationalist government, though Indians of all religions have eaten biryani for centuries. So there are different manifestations uh, around the world and we can speak about, you know, um, why it is so easy uh, to kind of uh, perpetuate this sort of narratives and, um, you know, there are different sometimes conversations that sound funny, but they are really not. And uh, they are related also to the ways that some foods have been used in the Balkans as well. Um, for example, you know, in 2020, in Serbia, in south of Serbia, actually, a mayor of one town said that the city of Leskovac will sue pop star Dua Lipa. And the producers of the culinary show who presented the brand of uh, food called Ivar as an Albanian national specialty. So imagine that. we have What happened is that the Dua Lipa, who is a British and global pop star originally from Kosovo, was a guest on that TV show. Um, and when the host asked her, what's your, you know, what is the Albanian delicacy that everyone should try before they, you know, before they person, before they die? And Dua said, Ivar. And so the next frame in the show, uh, which is talking about this specialty, is a picture of Ivar, which says, Leskovac Ivar, and Leskovac is that town in Serbia. So this mayor saw it as the appropriation of their territory and history. And of course, there's so much background uh, between, you know, and history between Serbian nationalists and Albanians and the persecution. So he said that they will sue her, which of course never happened. But um, it's really interesting how food um, in, in every region, but in that region, uh, can serve for 
you know, perpetuation or continuation of just different nationalist narratives and sometimes even racist ones. And and just the last thing that I will say in this segment is related to Boza, which Suna, of course, also wrote about and which is a very dear to me, reminds me of my mom, actually. And that is that, you know, in um, spring last year, I believe, Croatian media reported how the word Boza has never been Googled in history like that. And you know why it happened? Because two highest Croatian statesmen used it in their public fights that have been going on for months. So the prime minister of Croatia said for the president that he had revealed himself as the most ordinary seller of Boza which was supposed to be an insult, right? Uh, Milanovic replied to Plenković, who is the, that prime minister, saying the prime minister crunched boza with whipped cream and cream cheese while he drank whiskey and beer. And and so, and boza cannot be bought in Croatia. It's not very familiar there. So the television, you know, uh, kind of, and people started Googling what is boza and learn about it. And, and it's just ugly. It is so sad and so ugly what happens with food in these um, very, very ugly conversations. But of course, it has history and background that we can talk about. So, so I need to ask you, uh, you know, about what authentic cuisine really means because it, it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, uh, so my wife is from Syria and, uh, you know, when, when we talk about Syrian food, she, she's very particular about the fact that, you know, uh, uh, she's from Aleppo and, and the fact that Aleppo cuisine is, you know, very, very different to, to Damascene cuisine or to, um, uh, you know, the more uh, dairy heavy uh, uh, the type of pastries you see in places like Homs and Hama. Uh, Hama, which which has a lot of um, uh, you know uh, open farmland and, uh, and open grazing areas, uh, it's it's famed for its uh, for its dairy. Uh, you know, in in Turkey, uh, which uh, which you know you mentioned in your piece, um, as a foreigner there, uh, you know, I thought of Turkish food uh, in in sort of regional um, contexts, right? Because Hatay food is is very different to the kind of food you eat in Gaziantep, to the kind of food you eat in Diyarbakir, to the kind of food you eat in in, in Istanbul or in Urfa, and um, and and you know, so what does it mean for cuisine to be authentic if if you know it varies so much from you know within within a country if there are so many influences you know you've got in Aleppo Armenian influences uh, you know over dishes Turkish influences as well. Uh, you know, in addition to influences from other parts of, of Syria, uh, you've got the, the same in Turkey where, uh, you know, you've got distinct dishes in, in, um, uh, in all of these uh, different parts of the country. And, uh, and even, you know, something like kebab is, is prepared in very different ways in, uh, in Gaziantep as opposed to Orpah, as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, Diyarbakir. And, and so what does it mean to, for cuisine to be authentic, really? I love that question. And I think there are different ways of, uh, approaching uh, answer to that and Suna can chip in uh, about Turkey of course um, I think that you know I mean obviously I researched um, because of preparing for writing that essay and because of personal interest and it's really amazing how the scholarship on gastro-nationalism as, as a so, sort of discipline and actually interdisciplinary scholarship on it is arising because there is sociology, there is politics, there is political economy, there are all sorts of factors that come together and there should be looked uh, when we speak about this. But, you know, just like so many scholars and writers pointed out for so many other subjects in food-related matters too, we are talking about centuries of mixing of all sorts of stuff, of ingredients, culinary techniques, food traditions. And you mentioned right now as well, like so many different peoples who lived pretty much, I mean, in empires. And that that is very important to kind of um, mention when we speak historically. If we do speak specifically about Ottoman Empire, um, what I relied on is scholarship by people who have researched it and talked about um, that um, historical part. And I learned that since 2000, there is that renewed emphasis on Ottoman Empire's cosmopolitan character. And there are a lot of factors like, you know, high-end restaurants serving Ottoman cuisine. And that before that, um, you know, until the 1980s, there was not much even literature on Ottoman culinary cuisine. There was one book that was very popular. I think it was published in 96 from what I learned. It's called Timeless Tastes about Turkish culinary heritage. But 
even, I mean, there is like not even a precise definition of Ottoman cuisine and different scholars define it in different ways. Some say that it is the food culture of the Ottoman palace. Other scholars like Özge Samanju, whose scholarship I read, say that it is kind of traditional Turkish cuisine of multiple ethnic communities that live there. But what is undeniable is that it is a mix of culinary traditions, like you say, of people who lived in that space. And then, of course, in this context, uh, since the 50s, migrants from Anatolia, Eastern Anatolia, came to Istanbul, and they have started to open food outlets and sell different local products. And I was, you know, I was not, I mean, surprised to learn that Istanbulites or the bourgeoisie saw condescendingly on, on them. They thought this was kind of inferior to that fine traditional foods, that it was strong with spices. But the, today, um, the subject of cuisine in Turkey has become politicized. And actually, in my piece, I do mention Musa Dadeviran uh, of Istanbul's Chia restaurant. And he is famous uh, creator of the food and culture quarterly called Yemek ve Kültür, Yemek and uh, Food and Culture. And so I got, I saw his, um, an episode about him on a Netflix TV show. And I was so interested in learning about him because of what he said. And I got his cookbook and, you know, he said, well, you know, ancient Greeks lived here and Romans and Byzantines and Anatolian Seljuks, and they all made their unique mark. So what happened afterwards, and we can talk about it. I, I wonder if Suna wants to chip in on this. And I can talk about Austria-Hungarian Empire because I know similar dynamics happened there. Um, and, and the scholars who work there also mentioned that there are so many cultural borders, Catholicism, Protestantism, Orthodoxy, and different cultures mixing there in Vienna, like in Istanbul, and how from the mid-19th century there was an increased mobility of people. You know how people traveled more for work and study and leisure, and how that melting pot actually became uh, really that empire mix was reflected in that uh, cuisine. But of course, what happened is that empires ended and nationalism came in, and it brought along all sorts of dynamics that uh, led to what you ask about authenticity of cuisine. Uh, but you know, and I, I can tell you what. I, I learned about it. I just wonder if Suna first wants to add something from her knowledge and background about this dynamics in the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, I, I, I want to ask us. I want to ask Suna about it. I, I will just mention one quick thing: is that um, I did not know that something called Ottoman cuisine existed, despite living in, in Turkey for a while, until uh, I went to this restaurant called Asitane, I think, uh, yeah. which is next mm -hmm. to the Kariye uh, Museum. Uh, and uh, and it was so different to, to everything that I was familiar with, not just in Turkey, but but uh, you know in, in cuisines across the region. Uh, it was uh, it was really quite striking. Uh, Suna, can, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, you know your take on authentic cuisine, particularly because you grew sure. up in, in a mixed neighborhood in, in Malatya, right? And, and yes. Your yes. Um, you know the family the families uh, presumably ate differently among uh, Alavian city families, or, or was it? Uh, was it something that uh, that was sort of distinct to the town itself, the city? Well, I mean, a typical Malatya cuisine is like very interesting, and it is very confined. Um, uh, the the cuisine is based on using uh, bulgur, and we make uh, perhaps like tens or twenty different recipes uh, with using uh, tree leaves. So we make uh, dolmas with uh, quince leaves or uh, cherry leaves or um, plum leaves or uh, things like that. So all sorts of different things. We are, I mean, Malatya is situated in the eastern part of Turkey, very close to Antep, Urfa, the, the kebab capital of Turkey. But uh, the stuff that we work on in our cuisine is not very kebab or oriented it is very bulgur oriented and i think it's in a way it's like the 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 cuisine of the poor people right so i grew up eating a lot of bulgur and um when in my teenager years i hated bulgur um now i'm going back to it thinking that it was the healthy uh item uh but as i said you know um the the cuisine of malati is very uh, different from the from its surrounding uh towns in terms of how I see the Turkish cuisine or how I relate the Ottoman cuisine with the contemporary Turkish cuisine, I, I would say Turkish cuisine is not like the French, Japanese or the Chinese cuisine. Um, we see a lot of regional uh, variations and this is 
totally against the idea of seeing the French cuisine or the Japanese cuisine as the homogenous and uh, opposing to all sorts of variations. So what we have with the Turkish cuisine is we see so many uh, varieties. And I, I must say it is almost like a, you know, unity in diversity, the Turkish cuisine. And in a way, what uh, Riyadh said about uh, Musa Dadevran and his restaurant in Chia, what he bases his kitchen on is the understanding, throwing in an understanding for the Anatolian uh, cooking practices through the ages. So he's very immemorial, he's very perennial, and he's interested in the history and how different types of food and ingredients and the recipes diffuse and get adapted from one setting to another, regardless of the religion, regardless of the ethnic background and so on. And I find that very, very fascinating. Uh, one thing that I wanted to add when Riyadh was talking about how we nationalize uh, food and how we politicize uh, the food, um, um, the, the parallel that I want to draw is the identification of the Israeli cuisine. I think at times of great turmoil or political problems, people always uh, turn their attention to food. Um, in 1967, for example, after Israel's victory in the six-year, six-day battle, um, they started writing many cookbooks. And I think cookbooks in our discussion today would be one of the items that we can again come back to uh, because you know um, cookbooks are being used. Uh, they are they play this really important role in fixing the counter of, of a nation or a region. So for example, the cookbooks that are written in the late 1960s in the early 1970s in Israel, they attempted to describe what Israeli uh, cuisine is and it said, it was mainly Jewish, and it threw, it it got European and American um, values or practices or ideas in it. So, for example, they rejected totally uh, Arab or Palestinian uh, element in it. They ignored it, but at that point, I think they had a reason for it. And one of the cookbooks that was written around that time um, uh, by... Uh, by someone uh, by the name of Ruth Sirkis. Uh, she was the wife of a diplomat uh, who traveled with her husband quite a bit. Um, she says a typical Israeli uh, cuisine or table have, uh, must have Israeli chops, chopped salad, shakshuka, falafel, kebabs, goulash, schnitzel, and the Yemenite soup. And I just look at the list and I said myself, what is Israeli about this table, right? But you know, at that point, they were so careful about creating a new identity and drawing in all the references that they can identify with the Israeli background, I think. And that way they managed to claim that land. They politicized it and they managed to claim their identity. And I think the same person, and I'm gonna, uh, uh, finish with that uh, in regards to that question. The same lady, Ruth Serkis, in another interview, she was asked to define what Israeli cuisine is. And she said, you define what love is, and I'm going to define what Israeli food is for you. So it just gives you another idea that this matter of identifying the cuisines, it is very uh, subjective. Uh, we cannot claim, we cannot own any recipe because we want to, um, you know, we feel like we own it. There's no such such thing, I think, because the food, as I said, it is very dynamic. It has this really dynamic, vibrant nature, and it travels from one place to another with the help of the um, um, human beings and, and societies. We're we're inching ever closer to uh, the topic I really want to talk about, which is uh, which is hummus. But but before we get to that, I, I wanted to ask both of you. You know, I mean, the the uh, Israeli um, uh, you know claims over over uh, certain ingredients or certain recipes uh, is something that does uh, you know cause a, an enormous amount of chagrin on on social media and among commentators, and um, uh, you know. 
I, I wanted to ask you, what are the practical um, you know, implications of, say, a, uh, you know, a hummus dish or, or, or a restaurant uh, you know, uh, claiming to be serving, you know, an Israeli dish as opposed to a Palestinian dish, um, uh, you know, when it's something that, that obviously was part of the Palestinian cuisine before Israel as a state existed. Um, you know, what are the practical implications of this in, in the real world? Uh, why, why do people despise it so much? Oh, we're getting ever so closer to Hamas wars. Um, so, I mean, I will just chip in here um, and I could and I'll go back later to the cookbooks because that's an interesting, uh, important point that Suna made. And uh, I definitely I mean, there's so many. It's such a sensitive particular that that um, that region. And um, when I studied this in the past like year and a half and I have there is a burgeoning scholarship, as I said, in this kind of precisely the idea of what is a national food, which you asked a couple of minutes ago, and the cuisine as well. And um, the scholarship that I relied on is by Atsuko Ichijo, uh, who is one of the most prominent scholars in this area. And actually, um, in, in a book uh, that was published in 2019 about the emergence of national food and the dynamics of food and nationalism, it was very interesting for me to see how different scholars addressed um, from different countries uh, the processes and circumstances under which something becomes or doesn't become a national food. And I do, after we go back, uh, finish this, Karim, want to ask you about Canadian cuisine, quote unquote. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was so interesting for me because they ask, they ask, so what is a cuisine? You know, as they say, is it, is, is, is it a set of constructed food behaviors? Is it food items? Is it some ingredients? Is it textures? Or is it, uh, you know, what is accepted or not accepted by this imagined community? Is, you know, is cuisine or national food always problematic? And what I thought was fascinating is that the authors actually suggest that instead of cuisine, we start using more the term national food, because in their opinion, um, it's not essentialist in that way, or it just shows that food is seen as national by at least some members of that nation and that um, cuisine could be, you know, more problematic rather than saying national food. And and it's very difficult. It's not an easy process. And, you know, the scholarship in different cases shows that it really depends. Um, you, know, in, in, you know, experts like Ichijo, and they assert that sometimes, like in Portugal, for example, there was a um, orthodox way of nation building, nation building and kind of factors like religion and political economy and industrialization made this relatively homogeneous group of people. But then there's also a chapter on Israel in that book, for example, now that Suna mentioned that uh, it was so interesting. And I don't know whether, you know, you two would agree or what do who people who are Israelis or Palestinians and what do they, how do they feel about it? Where the authors feel that while there is maybe an Israeli food culture, there is not an Israeli cuisine. So, um, you know, the, the, and the way that cookbooks kind of portray this also reflects the different views about it that, you know, there is, um, and I do own both the Jerusalem and Palestine cookbooks by Ottolenghi and Tamimi, which are very uh, popular and, or Tamimi and Tara Wigley, respectively. And, and it's, you know, it's different. It's very interesting how these cookbooks present these very uh, sensitive uh, political uh, circumstances in different ways. Like in Jerusalem, the food is described as Jerusalemite. And the, the author stated that nobody owes a dish because it's the dynamic nature of the food. But then other cookbooks, like I read, um, there's this cookbook author, um, Gore, who states that, well, you know, many Israeli dishes have Middle Eastern or Arab origins, but now they have become, you know, Israeli because the journey they have gone through in Israel makes them so. And like Suna mentioned, ultimately in this specific case, but I think it could be applied elsewhere, is that, um, you know, and the authors of, of this um, chapter on Israel say that the reason why the Israeli food concept is so contested is because, well, the Israeli national identity is 
contested and multifaceted. And so, um, you know, there are different divisions within it and different concepts of their national identity. So what Jewish, Israeli, Arab, Palestinian, multicultural. So in that sense, um, you know, the emergence of national food, as you pose that question, Karim, is very interesting. And we can talk about the U.S. as well and why something like hamburger or frankfurter is accepted, but what's the place of tacos as it has been, um, you know, written about, etc. But I'm curious, Karim, to ask you, what do you think about the Canadian cuisine? Because I've read uh, that, and you can tell me whether you can guess the background of the author, just saying that basically it's impossible to have national cuisine in Canada because it's, uh, it's multiculturalism just prevents it. Well, it's it's. I think it's a with Canada specifically. It's a, it's an interesting question because uh, you know you see in obviously different parts of Canada are, are quite different. For example, you know in Quebec there's there's a a very uh, at least you know I don't know if it's misguided or not, but there's at least an attempt uh, to grapple the idea of what uh, you know Quebec identity is and and, uh, and how it relates to secularism and how to enforce that identity. Um, uh, you know, in the face of uh, you know, changing societies, and um, uh, and you know, and so it's it's difficult to to come up with that question. I think the interesting thing about Canada is that, um, at least uh, you know, in my short experience as an immigrant here, um, it, it does feel like the communities are a bit more um, segregated. Is not the right way, the right word for it, but but uh, they, you know, I feel like you know the the, the melting pot model that you hear about in the states. Uh, it's a it's a bit different here, and and uh, you know it feels like, for example, the Arab communities, um, uh, like let's say the Levantine communities, you know, Syrian, Lebanese, etc. You know they tend to congregate in in certain areas where where they live and they shop and they socialize, uh, and it's the same with with uh, with other communities. And I think that's been exacerbated by the pandemic too. Uh, so you end up having uh, almost like discrete mini cultures um, in um, uh, at least in, in you know where I live in. Montreal, um, it, it, and it feels that way to a certain extent, and, and so you can you can kind of hop between the communities and, and kind of uh, experience uh, a an almost local uh, experience in um, uh, you know in each area, uh, but without one thing that's, that's that kind of unifies all of them uh, as uh, as an identity. Um, th that said, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of poutine, uh, which, uh, uh, if any of you have had it in Quebec, it's, um, it's essentially, uh, fries, uh, covered with uh, cheese curds and gravy. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, it'll warm your heart in winter, which, <laughs> uh, which is endless. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but Rihanna, uh, I wonder if Suna can, can maybe answer uh, this part of the question, but, um, uh, you know, I, I understand some of the, um, uh, you know, how food is tied up with, with identity, but how does it damage, uh, you know, the Palestinian cause and, and uh, you know, the, the argument for, for and, and, you know, self-determination uh, for Israelis to have, uh, you know, their own uh, food identity or their own um, sort of take on, on, uh, on the cuisine or on certain dishes? Um. I think what uh, Riada mentioned in terms of uh, Samit, uh, Sami Ta Tamimi and uh, Yotamotolengi, what they had been doing or what they have been doing um, individually and together, I think it just did a lot of good uh, to our understanding of what uh, Palestinian food is. And here I include both the Arab and the Jewish presence within the culinary tradition. And calling it a Jerusalemite, not Israeli, not, not Palestinian, but um, labeling the food with the city, I think it just makes a lot of sense. And I think for cosmopolitan cities or cities with really long history, like Istanbul, Athens, you know, Sarajevo, um, Thessaloniki, uh, we can just play the same card. Um, if we call the cuisine Istanbulite cuisine, many people would understand what we are talking about. We are talking about a cuisine that is including uh, the, the culinary practices of the Armenians, the Jews, uh, the Greek Orthodox, uh, the Muslims, uh, immigrants from the Balkans, and so on. Um, I think it's a much better umbrella term for identifying 
sort of national or cultural zone uh, within our understanding of what food is. Um, so in that regard, I think the, the people that had to be congratulated uh, are those two chefs um, whose books were really phenomenal. And it just you know, brought the evidence together, um, uh, both sides of the story, both sides of the narrative. And one of the things that they talk about, and I think I'm grateful that Riada mentioned that book because I also browse, browsed that book before we uh, uh, started this, this uh, podcast. They both, Tamimi and Otalengi, they complain that um, uh, both sides of the divide are not talking to one another in terms of their culinary practices because each side is claiming an item of their own. Um, not only just that, but within the Palestinian community or within the Arab community or within the Jewish community, people are not talking to one another as well. So there is like a total uh, silence and no... Um, wish to interact with one another, with one another, uh, with in terms of the culinary uh, practices or um, the recipes and so on. Um, yeah, uh, the other thing uh, in terms of this poutine business and whether it is Canadian or how, whether we can label this as a as a Canadian food, I think there was a chapter in the same book about uh, that labeling as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh oh, I, I think we're going to get in trouble with our Canadian listeners too now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, what was interesting in that, uh, and and specifically because you're in Quebec, that was uh, that um, the author Fabien Ouellet is actually Quebecois, and he is complaining that specifically, and there was some Putin uh, scandal not like Vladimir Putin, but Putin, the food, the, the, the dish you mentioned in 2016, I think. And he was, what basically he was claiming in, in this um, chapter that Sun also mentioned is that there, there is a cultural appropriation of Quebecois culture uh, and that what we think of Canadian cuisine or what is being presented as such is actually just um, a specific geography or it's the heritage of Upper Canada. So, you know, for him, he you know he's saying we have to distinguish Quebecois cuisine from the Canadian cuisine. And that uh, so he was talking about that particular dynamics and for him, like you mentioned, it was that the multiculturalism and the Can Canadian multiculturalism for him, for this author, just doesn't allow the occurrence of any um, overarching Canadian cuisine because there is this just plurinationalism prism that he suggests instead uh, that that's the way that should be used to study uh, cuisines and cultures in Canada. But I mean, these are Every geography has its specificities, and um, I can understand how the conversations about the food appropriation are valid. And you know, I understand the idea of disrespect that many can feel, or how it can feel personal. And I can also empathize when something just doesn't reflect uh, what the dish really is. I am a, a new-ish immigrant in the United States, and I'm just trying to observe the different sort of dynamics and conversations that happen on that topic here. And um, it's really interesting how identity politics manifests on these conversations here as well. Um, I just try to, um, you know, keep learning, keep observing, and keep listening because there's so many different experiences of different communities here, for example. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm learning even new terms like lunchbox racism. I just learned that recently, you know, and I have kids who are um, going to school. And as I prepare their lunchboxes now, I think about that, you know, that was um, basically a lot of um, Chinese Americans have shared their experiences throughout the years, how they were made fun of for the food and the allegedly how it smelled uh, from their lunchboxes in schools. And that was just so cruel, you know, and, and kids can be very cruel, let me tell you, at a very early age in terms of bullying. And it's, it's, it's sad. Um, and there are different ways of appropriation in this context, the way they are um, discussed and, um, you know, what does that say about a particular society? What is, uh, you know, who belongs? What are the stereotypes? Uh, why does somebody not belong? You know, this otherizing and, and the standards by which we um, accept each other are um, really, um, you know, 
sometimes similar across the geographic context, uh, sometimes different, but it's um, very, very fascinating to observe and hopefully learn from each other. And um, I, I just wonder if you guys want to chip in about something that I think um, we haven't mentioned so far, but that is a very valid point. And that is the kind of the factor of UNESCO and, you know, the intangible cultural heritage list and the way that that kind of, um, you know, makes this nation state competition uh, just that it reinforces it because we have baklava wars, you know, coffee wars, halloumi wars, all sorts of wars about, you know, countries competing to stamp, to put a stamp as if something is, you know, unique to them. And I just can't see how that is productive. Does yeah. that make sense? I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm very conscious of the time, but I, I do want to address this, this issue uh, first before, before I let you both go, because I, I think the, the appropriation argument is, is really interesting. I mean, um, uh, you know, we, we, I talk about the hummus uh, thing jokingly, but, um, uh, you know, it is, uh, it is actually, it is true that, that people do get up in arms about what they see as, um, uh, as an appropriation of their cuisine. And you actually see a, a lot of this with, um, you know, Western food uh, fads uh, in particular, you know, uh, for example, uh, you know, frike is a, is a very common grain that, that you see a lot in, in uh, you know, on Syrian uh, Levantine uh, tables and, uh, uh, and it's it's the now is kind of one of the healthier grains, and so it's quite popular in in uh, the West. Um, and you know, and hummus was was the other one. Uh, that, you know, it, it is seen as kind of a uh, uh, almost I don't know if superfood is the right uh, terminology for, it, but it is seen as this healthier alternative to a lot of uh, uh, you know snacks that uh, that people tend to have over here. And um, and and so you know, it you end up having it sort of be uh, integrated into this. Western cuisine model, uh, and you know it's everywhere in supermarkets now, uh, and uh, and it does come adulterated, but it's it's changed from from its um, from its original uh, um, uh, from what it is originally. Uh, and then the other side of this, uh, which which I found absolutely fascinating, is that you see basically the same exact um, food or drink in different communities. And uh, and different names for them, and and you'll end up uh, you know causing a uh, uh, you know major offense if you were to refer to them by their by the names that you're familiar with. I'll just give you mm -hmm. a, a, a small example. Uh, I was in Greece once, and and, uh, and I made the mistake of asking for Turkish coffee, uh, which is uh, you know what I've always known it to oh, be. Oh man, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, and, and the waiter brought me tea, and he said, "Over here, we call it Greek coffee." And, um, you know, and, and it's, it's fascinating because it is the same thing. And, and why, you know, there could be, why is it called Turkish coffee? It's basically the same coffee. Um, but, you know, and why is it called Greek coffee here? Why is it just called, you know, coffee or, or uh, uh, you know, coffee in Darakwa, as we call it in, in the Arab world. Uh, but, but, you know, I'm, I'm curious to know, like, do you feel like um, uh, the, and I, I will bring it back to Hamas because the, the issue uh, interests me greatly. Um, in, in, an, in an academic and sort of cultural sense, but uh, do, do you think that, that there is an argument there for uh, the detractors of all these newfangled types of, of homos, or is it, uh, um, you know, is it curmudgeonly and, and, you know, get off my lawn kind of thing? <laughs> I mean, there is definitely room for discussion because um, I also like hummus and I like it uh, um, chunky, not creamy. Uh, so I like the version that's probably made in the southwestern part of Turkey, um, southeastern part of Turkey, not the Lebanese or the Jordanian version. So that's the type that I go for. And the other day I was shopping at uh, Morrison's here and they had hummus with pesto on it. Uh, to me, it is like a crime, um, you know. And I'm not sure, you know, who came up with that idea, why they think, you know, it complements the hummus well, no idea. But it seems like it's uh, selling really well. So it is, uh, it is appealing to the palate here. You know, the, 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 the British people like it. I have no idea. Uh, but, you know, when it comes to dealing with your own hummus and coming from that region, I think when we th think about that food, we think about many other factors when it comes to hummus or other divisive foods like baklava or lahmacun, you know, all sorts of 
discussions about class, nationality, diaspora, you know, how religious you are, whether you are allowed to eat that or not, things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, it is a fascinating story. What you the the your engagement with the humus narrative as well. I I um, I follow it on Twitter as well. But um, you know, with food like that, uh, that is very divisive. Um, but the main ingredients are very minimal, very simple. Um, I feel like you know you should just stick to the original, and you shouldn't mess it with too much. Um, um, yeah, that's that's exactly that's the thing that frustrates me about hummus is that like this is the product of, of you know hundreds maybe thousands of years yeah. of of you know accumulated wisdom yeah. and uh, and and you know you decide to to turn it into a marshmallow hummus yeah <laughs> yeah in the Balkan context we have I mean I was very torn when um, last time when I went to the store that sold that sells goodies from the Balkans I for the first time in my life saw. Burek, burek from chocolate, or like chocolate burek. And, you know, both of you are probably familiar with burek, the filo dough paste. And even in, within the Balkans in Bosnia, we call burek only a pie with meat specifically, while, for example, in Serbia or in, you know, um, regional, in the region, you say burek with cheese or burek with spinach or burek with this and that and for us that's kind of like a blasphemy but seeing chocolate burek was I was torn uh, because I went home and I researched the company that made it and it's this amazing women-owned business by two Albanian immigrants based in New York or New Jersey and you know they had a wonderful story and they make several kinds of bureks with different you know, ingredients and it's kind of creative. They have, you know, ricotta cheese and mushroom, whatnot. And it was very intriguing for me to want to try it, even though chocolate burek sounded so weird and, you know, not, not the way it's supposed to be. So I posted it online, trying to be very kind and kind of celebrating the creative spirit of these um, entrepreneurs and wanting to support them as well. Um, and, and, and I totally think that that's a very diaspora American market kind of, um, you know, development. Uh, but it was, you know, received with a lot of curiosity and interest and all sorts of reactions online. But I think that um, it's something that's unstoppable, but there are different ways of doing it. And uh, I can understand and empathize with you, Kareem, about all your dedicated efforts towards, um, you know, fighting the, the cause of the you know, genuine hummus as, as you see it. Uh, well, I just, I just think it's better hummus. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll uh, you know, I won't keep eating it. That but who makes it better, Kareem? <laughs> who makes it best <laughs> now you'll get me in trouble uh, <laughs> I, I will end on this note though that um, uh, you know just to to uh, kind of uh, show you guys the the consequences of um, uh, you know of adulterated foods um, you know and, and uh, the distances and how far we can fall um, there's uh, there was a story a while back uh, uh, you know re uh, recapturing some of the uh, uh, aspects of Richard Nixon and, and his presidency uh, and it turns out that Richard Nixon uh, loved to have for breakfast cottage cheese and ketchup. Wow. Man. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's what I want to call uh, breakfast Americanism. <laughs> but uh, I... I uh... That is uh, lunchbox racism. I think that's a breakfast <laughs> Americanism. Well, uh, I'm, I'm really grateful to the both of you for coming here and spending this hour with me and uh, with the New Alliance readers and taking the time. Um, and I can't uh, wait to read uh, what you write next uh, for us, uh, Suna and Riata, and, um, uh, and to continue the conversation on, uh, on social media. Thank you both for coming. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you so much, Kareem.